Well, in the book Money Magnet, I draw two left and right perspectives, if you like. The left perspective is survival. Having enough money, earning enough money, making, managing, multiplying enough money to feel that you can survive financially. And in Australia, that might be around having enough money in your superannuation fund, your investment portfolio, share portfolio, etc. How, how much margin have you got that if you had to stop work tomorrow, uh, you, you would have the resources to be able to support yourself above and beyond the minimum standard of life that you'd get from welfare. and Frightfully, a lot of people are living on the, what I would call, honestly, the, the scary line of financial oblivion because they assume that they can keep earning money and that nothing will go wrong. Well, you're only a stroke away from not being able to work in your job anymore and if you don't have money put aside because you've been thinking, oh, I've got tomorrow to work, then those assumptions of good health, as you, you mentioned before, around self-health and wealth, if you lose your health, then often you'll lose your wealth as well. So what we want to try and do is work on this survival context and make sure we build in enough margin so that if something goes wrong, we're not destitute. That's survival. Significance is how can I use my resources to create and leave a legacy, to touch, move, and inspire other people. Welcome to Get Invested, the leading weekly podcast to help you unlock your full potential and enjoy your version of sustainable success that lies at the intersection of your three elves, yourself, your health, and your wealth. I'm your host and guide, Bushy Martin, and each week we go deep, sharing great conversations with proven experts in all walks of life including the best investors, property experts, analysts, leaders, founders, sports stars, and health gurus to uncover their secret know-how and where they invest their time, their skills, and their money, and the benefits that this creates. To help you find out what it takes to break free from the grind and discover your flavor of freedom, to create your freedom formula. You see, the truth is that everyone invests. Every second of every minute of every day, we're investing our time, our skills, our energy, and our money in something. Some of us are investing consciously, some unconsciously, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, and sometimes for no impact. Get Invested will help you start living by design, not by default. I'm going to help you to make it happen, not let it happen. You'll hear the top tips on how you can live with conscious intent so that you can live more, work less, and live your legacy by investing now. You'll enjoy the stories and secrets of high performers who invest for success in every aspect of their lives and discover the top tips on how to get started, how to make the most of your investment journey, and ultimately, to be living your dream, not someone else's. As you engage in each episode, you'll glean the information, inspiration, and implementation that you need to get empowered and get invested in imagining and actioning the life that you've always dreamed about. And Get Invested is proudly part of Property Hub, your home for property investment insights and inspiration. Make sure you subscribe now on your favourite podcast player to get every episode of Get Invested and Realty Talk, which is Australia's leading and longest running online property show that's full of red hot property investing news and insights direct from all of the industry leaders and influencers. You can also connect with me personally and join the Get Invested community of fellow freedom fighters at bushymartin.com.au or on knowhowproperty.com.au. Now, let's get invested. Hi, freedom fighters. Are you feeling financially overwhelmed or find yourself bogged down in debt? Are you concerned that your current retirement looks like learning to survive on the smell of an oily rag on welfare by having to work until the day you drop? Or on the flip side, maybe you have money and you're comfortable, but you lack the passion and the purpose on how to use it to make a difference. Because what's the point of having a lot if it only means a little? If you fall into any of these camps or anywhere in between, you're going to absolutely love today and next week's conversation. Because today's very special guest, which is an absolute bucket list moment for me, has a goal through his new book, Money Magnet to help you manage, make, and multiply your money to become financially empowered 
and then make your money count by using it to live a life rich in happiness for yourself, your family, and others. For those of you who've been listening to me for a while, you know that I'm a big believer that sustainable success, with an emphasis on sustainable, lies at the intersection of the three elves, self, health, and wealth. It starts with self, which is about what's between your ears on the inside. And here we're talking about your mindset in terms of your faith, your beliefs, attitudes, outlook, and expectations. This then rolls into health, which is about your happy habits, rewarding rituals, and daily disciplines that you develop in your living, eating, breathing, and movement to help you build the patience, persistence, and resilience muscles to then be able to attain and maintain your wealth by stealth, which is about enjoying the freedom and fulfillment that only comes from giving freely to others without ever expecting anything in return and without anyone actually knowing about it. And these three pillars help you to shift from personal success to lasting significance, to use your money to fund a legacy that you'll be remembered for long after you're gone, because how you use your money is how you'll be known and remembered. So will you be remembered for the materialism that you've amassed or your magnetism and attracting admiration for the way you made your life count by touching, moving, inspiring, and improving the lives of others? Because as today guest says, if you want to attract more, you first need to become more attractive because the law of attraction only works if you give from the heart in terms of what's in it for others, rather than giving from the head as in what's in it for me. You need to give before you get, not the other way around. And as I'm sure you'll hear in our great conversation, this shift from success to significance revolves around faith. The shift from being good to doing good and leaving the world a better place. And our very special guest's own life is an absolute living testimony to the benefits of this approach. So who am I talking about? Well, here's some more hints. After a decade-long career in accounting, he became a professional investor where he uses accounting and investing knowledge to purchase 130 properties in 3.5 years. In 2012, he established a managed investment fund that went on to purchase more than $100 million worth of commercial property. And through his books, his training programs, and his websites, he's positively impacted the lives of millions of people, of which I'm actually definitely one of them. And I wouldn't be enjoying what I'm doing today if it wasn't for his generous information and inspiration to help me make it happen. Now, he probably doesn't know this, but after reading his books and taking our entire team to his investment conferences for a couple of years running back in the the early noughties, we built a substantial portfolio that includes our personal investment in the US property market. So if you haven't guessed already, I'm talking about the living legend that is Steve McKnight. Now, I've often talked about my Kiyosaki moment that kickstarted my passive-aggressive approach, but what I haven't shared are my series of many McKnight moments over the years that include Steve-isms, I can't even say it, like as long as people need to live in houses, you can make money out of real estate, and you just need to turn people's property problems into solutions. So in many ways, Steve has become Australia's very own Kiyosaki, transforming investment concepts into actionable results. Steve is one of Australia's best-selling authors of multiple books, of which From Nought to Financial Freedom is my favourite way to get started. But it doesn't end there. True to form, Steve's also an active philanthropist, and he's donated 100% of the royalties from all of his books, totalling more than a million dollars, to social and environmental causes. His latest project involves planting a new permanent native forest on previously cleared land under a program that he calls Tree Change. And Steve's just released his next bestseller, Money Magnet, How to Attract and Keep a Fortune That Counts, which we're going to unpack over the course of the two episodes. So welcome, and let's get invested, Steve. G'day, Bushy, and g'day, listeners. It is such a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for that generous and heartwarming introduction. Can I have it in writing so that I can pass it on to my kids? Because (laughs) I'm afraid to say that anything dad knows is uh, not worth knowing when it comes to my kids. I've still got some some ground to cover there. Teenagers, who knew? Mate, that that is an ingrained exercise. It doesn't matter how good you are or what you do, your kids are never going to believe it, mate. So uh, I also know that from firsthand exercise, but uh, 
that that was a uh, I could could have gone on for an hour just talking about your achievements, mate. But uh, wouldn't wouldn't leave time to enjoy your ongoing words of wisdom. So, mate, sort of to kick things off, and I, I really am uh, very blessed to have you on the show. Uh, I, I know that you'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to have heard of you. But for those very few that haven't, what do you do differently? And most importantly, mate, why do you do what you do? Mm, well. Never take for granted that people know who you are. For a while there, I was doing a lot of TV and people were approaching me on the street to sign books and I decided I didn't like that. I wanted to live the, the life of a recluse. I certainly didn't buy a property portfolio to be a celebrity. And there's probably people who are into investing now in their 20s and early 30s who may not have come across me because I have been reasonably quiet over the last decade or so as I've focused on that managed fund. But my story begins much like many people who will be listening to this in a job, realising that the career that I was in it wasn't the career that I wanted to be in and that I was a slave to money, working five days to enjoy two days off. And in my case, I had some stress-related health concerns, which meant that it wasn't possible for me to stay in that career much longer without actually causing serious risk to my health, even death. And much like yourself, I came across a guy called Robert Kiyosaki, read his book, went to his preview night, then ended up at a two-day seminar. And it wasn't really what Robert said that was the aha change point for me. It was a real estate agent from Sydney who was a guest speaker who got on and said, I don't know why people get into negative gearing when you can get into positive gearing. And I didn't know about positive gearing. I didn't know the concept of buying property that puts money in your pocket. But when I heard about that concept, it was the light bulb moment. How many positive cash flow properties would I have to buy so that I didn't have to work anymore? And together with my business partner at the time, Dave Bradley, we worked out that we would need to buy about 130 properties. We didn't know how we were going to do it. We didn't have the money to do it, but we, that's what we needed to do. So we went on a crusade, Dave and I, and we bought 130 properties in three and a half years. And I retired at age 32 from the need to have to work. And then since age 32, I've been very lucky to be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want. And that's seen me travel the world speaking on real estate, but also be a very active philanthropist and also be present for the raising of my teenage kids. Which is an absolute blessing, mate, and, and something that unfortunately not not many hardworking Aussies get the, the opportunity to do. Uh, mate, I'd, I'd sort of like to sort of dig in a bit deeper into your journey so far if we can and, and sort of get you to take us through, uh, you know, the the inevitable roller coaster ride that life is in terms of where you've invested, invested your time, energy, and money over the years, uh, and sort of, sort of drilling into the highs and lows so that uh, you know those listening in can see that it's not all beer and skittles uh, when you're looking from the outside, and then sort of talk us through how this has led to where you are today and and what you're about to do. I was sitting on the couch the other week, and my daughter was sitting on the other couch at home. And we were watching TV and, and she looked up from her laptop and phone, which she was also present with at that moment. <laughs> and she said to me, Dad, I think I've figured it out. I said, oh, what, what have you managed to figure out? And she said, I think I figured out the secret of your success. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm all ears. What was the secret of, of my success? She said, Dad, you were just lucky. <laughs> <laughs> and as I reflect on that, I also reflect on the incredible sacrifices, hard work, risks, effort in learning new concepts, traveling the world to attend seminars, lie awake at night moments of properties that don't go to plan, people who make you promises and let you down, interest rates going up, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not easy and maybe I have been lucky in that the property market has generally been a tailwind most of the way. But the journey to where I am today is the process of buying problems and selling solutions. And that's really manifest itself in 
different ways as the market has changed, beginning with vendor finance, buying properties and selling them to people for less in repayments than they'd otherwise pay in rent, to buying blocks of units, to going to Tasmania and almost buying a town, uh, not Tasmania, to New Zealand, sorry, and almost buying a town, to then finding myself buying slabs of property in the United States after the GFC when you couldn't borrow money, but if you were lucky enough to have money, you could buy properties that on paper at least generated ridiculous returns to setting up a fund, raising money, investing money, $100 million plus under funds under management to where I am today, which is now almost leaving professional investing somewhat behind and, and using my time and energy to environmental projects as I seek to, in the, the classic book, half time to begin the second half of my working career. Yeah, it's a great book. It's one that I've been reading myself in that shift from success to significance. So, I mean, you've something I'd like to dig into, mate, because you've had an incredible record, and I know it's not luck as much as your daughter might like to think that's the case, uh, of, of really reading the, the curve ahead of time. Uh, because as we all know, the property conditions change continuously, and out of that create, you know, that creates plenty of opportunity. But you've always had this sort of uh, modest touch almost in relation to being able to read the tea leaves in such a way that you get in early and then ride the wave. Uh, are you able, or do you know what it is that sort of helped you to be able to sort of uh, pick the currents in that regard? I do think it's part of a, a blessing, a God's blessing on your life to be able to to see things a bit clearer than what other people see things. And in my case, it's the ability, I think, to read financial markets and financial conditions and to wargame it, to come up with, as I like to say, you really want to be planned for the worst-case scenario and hope for the best-case scenario. So I play out a whole lot of worst-case scenarios in my head so that I've got plans ready to go. And as the situation unfolds, I just roll with the strategy that's most applicable for that time. And as you said, I mean, people are always fearful that the, the market might shift and turn into a headwind rather than a tailwind. Well, that's just an opportunity. And your ability to be able to see the opportunity, participate in the opportunity and monetize the opportunity is the very essence of your opportunity to make money. Whereas if you're just someone that parks your money somewhere and you do well when the market's going up, well, you'll only ever make money when the market's going up. What you'll do when the market's down or sideways is be fearful or panic. And that's not where you want to be, is it? No, absolutely, mate. Uh, what what you haven't shared with us uh, on the journey so far is that, you know, from, from doing the homework, uh, you had a bit of a challenging start. I, I, I think uh, I've heard you say in the past that uh, you used to be called Captain Blubber uh, in your very oh, early days, thank, mate. Thank so, you for taking me back to primary school. <laughs> Bullying. Oh, I'll never get past that. Look, I've always battled with weight in my life. I was quite overweight as a kid, uh, and that was something that I was sort of overweight until my early 20s, went to Weight Watchers and lost a pile of weight. And really my weight's been a bit of a challenge since then. I'm not overweight but I, I do have moments where I turn to food for comfort. I find that my own insecurities tend to manifest in, in eating and anyone who, who likes to eat sweet stuff or whatever it might be will, will resonate with that. But like anyone that has a, has a tendency towards something that isn't helpful, that, that's your battle. That's your thorn, you know, in your side. And your ability to be able to see your weakness and try and build up safeguards against falling into it is about knowing thyself, which is very important. Yeah, and it's um, that's that's the hardest part. The mirror time is a thing that very few people spend any time doing. Do you, do you think the sort of early challenges have sort of helped you build the resilience, patience, and persistence that you need to uh, achieve the success that you have, both personally and professionally? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> All, all that good theory. All that uh, primary school bullying did was feed insecurities that have lasted a lifetime. Okay. No, what I think 
set me up for success far better than being overweight as a young kid was being a basketball umpire. Not many people know I was a basketball umpire. It was my first job. And standing on court and blowing your whistle, you'll only ever be half right. And then you've got your angry parents and kids that feel that for $8 an hour, which is what you used to get paid, they could pretty much shout at you and abuse you. And you you had to get a pretty thick skin being an umpire. So I found the ability to make a decision by being a basketball umpire, and even if there was a bit of doubt, being confident behind the call that you were going to make, and they used to call it selling the call. And then even if you've got doubts, making sure no one knows that you've got doubts by being assertive and being very confident about it was was a real asset to me that I didn't know at the time. Yeah, okay. That's that's, that's interesting, mate. Uh, because it's, I hadn't thought of it. I mean, being an umpire is probably about the, it's up there with being a politician or being a AFL <laughs> footy coach, I reckon. Not that uh, bad. <laughs> it's, it's pretty damn close. So uh, I can see I can see how the resilience would, would come out of that because, as you say, you I mean, half the people are going to hate you and half the people are going to love you for every time you blow the whistle. But uh, what, what, what I'd love- Can I tell you a funny story, Bushy? Yeah, I'd love to, mate. Now, stories, no one would have heard this before because I don't tell it at seminars, but I was umpiring this really important grand final between two private schools and the other umpire was a FIBA umpire, so a guy who had umpired Australia and international. And I'm not sure, to this day, I'm not entirely sure how I got the gig to be the other umpire, but it was it was this guy, Tony and me, and we were umpiring and it was at the old Albert Park Stadium in Melbourne and the the stands were full of people. Biggest crowd I'd ever umpired in my entire life. And I was it was first half and I was sort of the flow of play had changed and I was trying to trying to run in, in front of the play and I tripped over and went A over T. Spectacular crash and burn. <laughs> and all of a sudden there would have been about five hundred people laughing at me. Well, that I figured that was a resilience moment because it couldn't get much more embarrassing than that. <laughs> mate, I love it, mate. I'd never thought of umpiring in, in that context, but uh, it, it makes complete sense to me now. But, if, you've uh, got, if you've got a child who's struggling with self-confidence, as strange as it might seem, throwing him in the deep end by being an umpire might actually be a step in the right direction. Yeah, it's a, a, a pretty smart move, mate, a very smart move, actually. But um, the... What I'd, I'd love to sort of unpick a little bit, if we can, as well, is your decision to become an accountant. Um, uh, were you was numbers something you're always comfortable with? Uh, what was it that prompted your journey down that <laughs> career path? No, I think it was year ten. I got year ten maths. The teacher wrote, "Always pleasant and amiable." Stephen has trouble with even the most basic concepts, or something like that, which is a nice way of saying, "Look, he's he's got a smile on his face, but geez, he's dumb." So I. <laughs> I was not not blessed with the gift of financial, well, mathematical wisdom at least. In fact, my high school deemed me too dumb to do year 12 maths in case I wrecked their passing average and forbid me for doing it. So I only did year 11 maths, veggie maths, which immediately tells people listening to this that you don't have to be a maths genius to be financially successful. What I do have is a very good grasp of my times tables and a very good index finger on my right hand to be able to press buttons on a calculator. <laughs> but I've got to say, having having read all your books, the, your ability to sort of come up with frameworks and formulas that are just so dead set easy to remember and, and sort of cut through uh, so you're not sort of get tied up in the detail are, are quite astounding, mate. So where's that come from? Is that just a, a part of your nature or was that something you've just sort of worked through? No, I think it's a gifting, Bushy. I reckon the ability to take a complicated topic and break it down into simple step-by-step logical sequencing is probably my greatest strength. Where does that come from? I think I've got a very inquisitive logical mind that also uh, my great-grandmother was a teacher, my grandmother was a teacher, my mum was a teacher, so teaching runs in the blood. And so I think I I have that teaching gift and I I have been a teacher for a little while professionally in a number of different pursuits, not only running seminars and things. And 
I like to try and help people understand. I get a kick out of seeing the lights go on, as it were. And maths is something that people struggle with. And if I, with my year 11 veggie brain maths, can unlock a door for someone that they don't know how to unlock because they don't have a key, then that's just a great blessing to be a blessing. Yeah, I totally agree because I've, I've often thought, Stephen, I'd love your thoughts around this, that uh, because of the way our education system is being structured, uh, people, uh, unfortunately, if they're not good at maths, then automatically think they're not going to be good with money. There's this sort of flow-on effect. It's not written anywhere, but it just seems to have this impact. And and if you you didn't do well at maths uh, during high school, then subconsciously people start condemning condemning themselves financially. But what's your thoughts on that? Couldn't agree more. Very embarrassing to be not good at something, a certain amount of shame and guilt that comes, and then to be faced with having to relive that humiliation is something that you don't want to do, so you shy away from it. You'd rather be an ostrich than to be humiliated or or ridiculed. In, In his book, Atomic Habits, uh, James Clear made the point that people would rather be wrong than ridiculed. So if you're right, but you're going to be ridiculed for being right, well, then you'll choose to be wrong rather than ridiculed. And I think that's how it is with finances as well. Rather than being ridiculed or made to be feel foolish, people would rather just be wrong. And Mm. it's such a pity because if I was a maths teacher, I would say, first class of the year, maths is, is an exercise of being a locksmith. There's a locked door and that's the problem and your job is to find the key that will unlock the door and there's a chance you're going to use the wrong key and it might fit but it won't turn. But what we need to do is we need to become a master of identifying the lock and identifying the key and if you can do that, you'll be a mass genius. It's not about formulas or advanced calculus or anything else like that. It's as, it's as hard as locks and keys. You need to find the lock. You need to find the key. If you can do that and be able to unlock it, you'll walk through that door and you'll be able to have a logical way of solving any problem because not just maths, any problem in life is about finding the key that will unlock that problem. Yeah, beautifully said. Um, what's your money story then? Uh, if we go right back and then then see it, it come through, what, what's sort of your been a, your approach in your relationship money as you've uh, gone down the journey? Well, I grew up in a house where mum didn't work, although she taught piano after school for some extra uh, money. Dad sold trucks and was paid a commission for selling trucks, and so often. When times were good, there was plenty of money, but more often than not, times were average or bad and there wasn't a lot of money to go around. And I grew up in a household where there was a lot of tension around money, arguments about money, and a lot of discontent about money. And that's such a pity. I've only come to realise later in life as an adult that really both parents did the best job they knew how to do, but they never had parents that showed them how to make, manage and multiply their money. And often, therefore, you, you're, what you receive from your parents is some Frankenstein of their best efforts, which, again, is not necessarily a plan to succeed, rather some sort of SOS, keep your head above water. So my money story starts by looking at the financial DNA I inherited from mum and dad, which was work hard or a strong work ethic. And so in accounting, when I worked in accounting, I had a very strong work ethic. I worked hard and that was probably why I ended up with a lot of stress-related conditions. Dad worked in that job his pretty much whole life and I realised that I was on the same pathway Dad was on and I didn't want that. So I had the wisdom of, of seeing Dad work his whole life in the one job, become a slave to it, and I decided in order to get something different, I needed to do something different. And that's when I abandoned my accounting career. I still pay the annual fees to be a chartered accountant. (laughs) It's so bloody hard to get. I didn't want to give it up. (laughs) 
at uh, about the best benefit I get out of being chartered accountant is I can certify people's photocopies as a true and correct copy <laughs> of the original. <laughs> but as I said, it was so hard to get. I'm not ready to give it up just yet. But uh, after accounting, I went on on a mission to buy, as I said earlier, as much positive cash flow properties I could, so that I could have freedoms that my my mum and my dad never had. So middle class upbringing. No visions of grandeur, no silver spoons up my bottom, nothing like that to draw upon, a, a hard work ethic, and then the accounting was helpful because it gave me a framework to be able to understand risk and decision-making, and I could then apply it to investing. Yeah, I love that, mate. So the, the, when you made the decision to leave the profession, I, I, I asked this because I went through a, a similar challenge myself when I gave up architecture. And, and I was treated like a pariah uh, by you know all the other architects that I'd uh, associated with, and and to some degree, uh, you know, my mother who who you know was always about working hard and getting the profession. Uh, she never said this, but I could I could read the read the vibes that she saw that as a failure. Uh, did you contend with uh, similar challenges at the time when you decided to make that break? And how did you work through them? It would have been a certain amount of pride your mum got by saying to her friends that her son was an architect. And to to walk away from that is, is a sort of readjustment that would be hard to make, I think. My dad had a similar thing. He was proud to let his mates know that I was a chartered accountant. And when I was having a conversation with him about walking away from that career, he said, why would you do that? Why would you throw in a, a safe, secure career you've worked hard for, for, for embracing something that may not pay off and, and not, you know, a lot of risk? And I said, well, Dad, I, I'm just not happy being an accountant. It's, it's, it's not something that I want to spend my life doing. And it's funny because years later, <laughs> Dad said, <laughs> after I'd made a success in it, in investing, he said, son, I always knew you'd do well out of investing. The best <laughs> thing I ever told you to do was leave accounting. <laughs> so, got to love it. Got a revisionist history, mate. You've got to love that. Mate, uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd love for you then, uh, you know, sort of now that we've uh, sort of getting into the investment piece uh, because everyone from the outside looking in, uh, and reading the books, I was oh, God, you know, this guy's had a dream. Everything he's touched has turned to gold. Uh, what what a, a dream run. Uh, I'd love for you to share some of the highs and lows uh, and experiences along that investment journey in terms of the, the good, bad and ugly so that, uh, you know, we get a, a true picture of, of what that's actually about. My darkest day was the day the government decided to take me down. And I don't talk much about this because it's something I'd rather forget, but it is a scar, which is pretty thick scar tissue. I became, I think, collateral damage, a pawn in a bigger game of chess where one day the ACCC wrote me a letter and said, basically, we're going to make an example of you because we don't think you bought 130 properties in three and a half years. And so I went on a, on a massive, expensive, many-month grueling legal challenge with the ACCC, which faded away into a, a oblivion in the end, but which was pretty unpleasant. A lot of lying awake at night, a lot of stress again, and for something which was something I was deemed guilty of before even having the chance of trying to prove myself innocent. Uh, that was not good. And it was a, a sort of giant wake-up call that sometimes you can be caught in a pinch point through no fault of your own. Of course, there have been property deals where things have gone wrong. I had a, someone drive a car through the front of the property. I've had properties burned down. You, you name it, it's probably happened to me. Tenants let you down, meth labs uh, in the United States, drug enforcement agencies breaking in. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, termites eating properties. Oh, like I said, you name it. It's. It, I mean, I've bought so much real estate, hundreds of properties over the years. You name it, it's happened to me, and probably twice on a number of different fronts. <laughs> but that said, again, it's all locks and keys. When something goes wrong, it's your job. That this is the act of investing to solve the problem. You can sit there and put on sackcloth and 
say, woe is me, or you can get on and say, well, geez, that's happened. Now what am I going to do about it? And that's that's the best you, you can do. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to gloss over how hard it's been, but the the biggest challenge I think any investor will face is not external but internal. Their own ability to be able to keep going when the doubts and the fears and the insecurities and the wobbles in life happen. Because you are you will be your biggest asset and your biggest liability. And working on yourself, I always say no one can have an investing outcome on the outside until they've had an investing breakthrough on the inside. Because if you're trying to invest your way out of a money problem, well, even if you're successful, you'll end up with a money problem because you haven't fixed the problem. You've you've wallpapered over it and, and that's not going to lead to a lasting success, temporary success only. So a lot of people will look outside because they're too afraid to look inside, whereas I've found you've got to start by looking inside to work out what your strengths are and then play to your strengths. Yeah, mate, uh, it's uh, very sage uh, commentary on that. I, and I, I didn't realise until you just mentioned it, the, the whole ACCC thing. I, I wasn't even uh, aware of that, mate. It, it almost sounds malicious in relation to let, let's knock over a tall poppy. Uh, I can't even imagine how uh, stressful uh, that that period would have been. Uh, what, well, remember, you- remember yeah. Bushy, it was the era of Henry Kay, and I think the ACCC had been found uh, a little bit deficient in that there were a lot of people ripped off by Henry Kay, and the question was, well, why didn't someone do something about alleged false and misleading advertising? And then they looked up and they said, who else is out there who might be a Henry Kay, and, oh, geez, this guy's talking about buying 130 properties in three and a half years. Surely that can't be real. Well, let's, let's, um, let's get the heavy boots on and uh, let's go and, go and, try, and uh, try and find out what's really going on there. And I, I think to a certain extent anything that's legitimate has to stand up to scrutiny, but it was an unpleasant experience to say the least. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine, mate. Um, uh, if we sort of sort of drill in uh, to, to some of those uh, property deals that that you have experienced over time, uh, what would you class as your best and worst, and and what have you learned from both? Mm, best and worst. I kind of don't have a, a fan page anywhere of all the properties that I've I've bought. I tend to forget about them after I've sold them. <laughs> Certainly the worst property, of course, has had to happen this way. I mean, worst property was a deal I did with my dad where we went and renovated a property in Ballarat, 111 Humphrey Street North, an old Federation house on a giant block of land that we thought we would do a quick reno and make 20, 25 grand easy. And of course, <laughs> the reno cost blew out, the time blew out and we would have made more money. We did make a small profit, but we would have made more money flipping burgers at McDonald's. And to this day, my dad says, and I think he likes saying this, to ensure that I stay humble. Of course, son, I have the dubious honour of being the partner in your worst investment. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Uh, you know, best investments are deals that I've made million dollars profit in a matter of months there's been a few of them sometimes you stumble over a rainbow or think you're riding a horse and it ends up being a unicorn rather than a donkey but you know they're they're more your uh unexpected upside events rather than things you can ever really plan for you you like i said if you buy enough property you'll get a few that go in your favor and you'll get a few that don't and that it just balances itself out yeah, yeah, I, I, it's spot on, mate. If it's the old story, if you if you take enough action, then uh, uh, some of those are going to be fantastic, and and others not so. But it's it's taking the action that that uh, uh, really creates that opportunity. I can um, tell you a story, Bushy. I've got lots of stories. I've got hundreds of stories. One right. at least one for each property that I bought. Uh, this <laughs> is this is a story of buying a property. This one's in Florida, and uh, it was a fiveplex. And it was cheap, forty grand for a fiveplex, eight thousand dollars a door. How could you go wrong? <laughs> and so I, I go to turn up to do the inspection, and the agent is with me, and we knock on the door, and the tenant opens the door, 
And as the tenant opens the door, the agent takes a step backwards behind me. And I, I think, oh, that's a bit unusual. Normally, the tenant will lead you in. And at that exact moment, this unholy, unhuman stench hit me in the face like a punch. Oh, I, really, there was nothing else like it that I had ever smelt or, or have ever smelt since. Almost taste it by the sounds of things. Oh, and so I, I'm looking, standing in the front door, trying to find out what is that smell and where on earth is it coming from? And I'm trying to make chit-chat with the tenant. Oh, do you like living here? And how long have you been here? And what are the neighbours like? And I'm, my eyes are scanning the room for the source of this smell. And then I find it. I find it. There on the ground is this kitty litter tray overflowing, overflowing with cat feces. And as I look at it, it starts to move. <laughs> I'm like, what? Am I seeing things here? What's going on? And I'm watching it and it's, it's shimmering and I, and I get migraines. And I'm thinking, oh, am I coming down with a migraine? And, <laughs> and strong smells trigger migraines. So I'm like, oh, I hope I'm not getting a migraine. And then I notice that the walls are moving. <laughs> and I'm like, what? What on earth? And then the ceiling's moving as well. And and then as I as I'm looking, remember this is all happening a bit like a car crash in slow motion. And as I'm trying to figure out what what am I seeing and trying to make sense of it, I can feel something crawling up my leg. Cockroaches, hundreds of thousands of little German cockroaches crawling everywhere in this unit, all over the kitty litter, all over the floors, all over the walls all over the ceiling, all over me. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, people, people living in this place. Yeah, and I, I, I said to the tenant, is it me or do you seem to have a cockroach problem? <laughs> and uh, the, the tenant, who was a young lady, said, yes, yes, as you can see, we've got a cockroach problem. I've been to hospital now because they've crawled into my ear in the night. <sighs> oh, dear. Anyway. The story goes that I bought that property for 40000 We tried the cockroach bombs, but there were too many cockroaches for the bombs. So the only thing we could do is we had to get all the tenants out and put a giant tent over the whole property and, and fumigate it massively. And then what we had to do is take all the gyprock, all the plaster off the walls and get all the cockroaches that were living behind the walls out as well. So we almost had to bring it back to frame stage and, and clean it up. But that's a deal that I sold a, a couple of years later for a few hundred thousand dollars. So, as I like to say, you make enough money and all the bad memories go away. <laughs> Mate, I, uh, I love that. I'm amazed you went ahead with it because most people would, uh, just the smell, they wouldn't get through the door frame. So, oh, uh, no, no. <laughs> no, remember, when you buy problems and turn them into solutions, you make money. That's that's my calling card. Buy problems, sell solutions, make money. If you're buying solutions, then the only way that you'll generally make money is if the market goes up. And the market doesn't always go up. But if you're buying problems, you can make a manufactured profit by using your skill and expertise to outperform. To me, that is the act of investing. The act of buying is buying something. The act of investing is taking a problem and turning it into a solution and using your God-given skills to make money. If you can do that, then you're not relying on the market, you're reliant on yourself. Yeah, I love that. You're creating your own economy. I, I, I remember you uh, saying uh, multiple times years ago that don't buy pretty houses, uh, buy problems and, and turn them into solutions. And uh, that that's a, a very graphic example of uh, of doing exactly that. Uh, mate, I, I'd, I'd sort of love to now turn because we've touched on this a little bit already during the the conversation but uh how do you believe that your uh very strong faith has influenced your investment journey mm, that's a interesting topic because i find that christians are generally pretty poor when it comes to money mindset there's a a guilt around it that they may have inherited from their parents or their pastor or someone else who's a strong influence in their life. And they'd rather not have it at all, lest they be corrupted by it. But they fail to remember that 
some of the leading forefathers in the Bible were very financially well-off. Abraham, obviously Solomon. These are these are people who were extremely wealthy. And the Bible doesn't say that being wealthy is a sin or a problem. What the Bible talks about is your heart. And if you worship money and become a, a lover of money. So my faith as a Christian, funny, funny. well, I guess it's not so funny in the grand scheme of how people find faith in their life. As a kid, I was made to go to church. And then as a teenager, mum said, well, you're old enough to make up your own mind. And I said, that's great. I'm never going to go to church again. It's full of boring old people. <laughs> and then as a, after I'd made a, a lot of money in real estate, I began wondering, there's got to be more to life than making money because I've made enough money now to never have to work again. What else is out there? And that's when I came across a guy, Alan Weatherall, who offered to do a private Bible study in his house and unpack the Bible because I thought the Bible was a book you read, like a like a uh, Tolkien story or something, and it turns out <laughs> that the Bible is something you've got to study. And as I studied it and unpacked it, it really resonated with me. There's something in it here, thousands of years of human experience with the struggles that they've faced and and trying to encounter God. And, of course, money is one of the most talked about topics in the Bible, certainly one of the most talked about topics of Jesus. So I figured there had to be some wisdom in here that I could apply to my own life. And so the faith or my faith has now become a context to the way that I view and use money. Yeah, yeah, I love that because I, I mean, similarly, uh, my good mother, you know, good country girl, uh, hardworking you know, folks, uh, it was always, you know, the pursuit of money is the root of all evil. Uh, and, you know, that, that's sat there for a long time. But my, my view of that has now changed because it's actually the pursuit at the uh, expense of everything else that's the issue, not money. That's the issue. Yeah. Money, money is just a vehicle and an enabler which can be used for good or bad. But, but what are your thoughts around that? I think you've got the wrong translation, brother. I think <laughs> the, um, the NIV and the love of money brings all kinds of trans- transgressions. I think pursuit and love are two different words. I think you can pursue money. Uh, the pursuit of money above all else might be something different, but the love of money And no doubt there'll be listeners who'll be thinking, hmm, do I know someone who loves money? And there'll be someone who'll be like, yeah, they they really love money. And what's what's the problem with loving money? Well, it leads to all kinds of transgressions. And those transgressions tend to be that you lose focus on the important things in life because you become consumed with more and You'll never have enough if you can always have more. And therefore, you see it often it becomes about power and about someone's ego rather than about being able to use that money to touch, move and inspire other people. And one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you feel you don't need God because you're self-sufficient and that is perilous territory that you stand on there. Yeah, Totally agree. Uh, if we sort of roll that in then, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that your faith uh, has in some ways shaped your shit to uh, significance. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, what does fulfilment, freedom and financial independence actually mean to you? Well, in the book Money Magnet, I draw two left and right perspectives, if you like. The left perspective is survival. Having enough money, earning enough money, making, managing, multiplying enough money to feel that you can survive financially. And in Australia, that might be around having enough money in your superannuation fund, your investment portfolio, share portfolio, et cetera. How how much margin have you got that if you had to stop work tomorrow, uh, you would have the resources to be able to support yourself above and beyond the minimum standard of life that you'd get from welfare. and Frightfully, a lot of people are living on the, what I would call, honestly, the the scary line of financial oblivion because they assume that they can keep earning money and that nothing will go wrong. Well, you're only a stroke away 
from not being able to work in your job anymore. And if you don't have money put aside because you've been thinking, oh, I've got tomorrow to work, then those assumptions of good health, as you, you mentioned before, around self-health and wealth, if you lose your health, then often you'll lose your wealth as well. So what we want to try and do is work on this survival context and make sure we build in enough margin so that if something goes wrong, we're not destitute. That's survival. Significance is how can I use my resources to create and leave a legacy, to touch, move and inspire other people? Because I've found that if you focus solely on survival, it's a struggle to begin with, and then you miss out on building passion by using your money in ways that will change the world. And personally, I found that significance, and I made the mistake of survival then significance, not survival and significance. If you can do survival and significance, you'll find that the money you earn will be great. That'll feed your survival uh, paranoia. But then by using your money to causes that add significance to your life, you'll be building this uh, treasure in heaven, if you like, that will lead you to, to stay motivated, to keep putting in the hard yards, to keep making money because you are now the benefactor of not only yourself but others. And being a benefactor, I think, is a very noble position to have in life because there's lots of money who lots of lots of causes and needs of money but there are precious few people who are out there supplying that financial need as jesus said the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few yeah yeah it's right on right on the money there so to speak uh, I'd, I'd love for you to then to you know paint a vivid picture of that in your own context as far as your life vision and your ideal lifestyle concerned and the and the legacy that you are currently living in and looking to leave. What does that look like? Now, people might be surprised to hear that at the moment I only own, I think it's three or four properties, but those three or four properties are quite large in size commercial properties that bring in over half a million dollars net of passive income a year or investment income a year. So you don't need to own 130 properties to be a success. I mean, I'm down to three or four, uh, what is it, Tassie, couple in Queensland, uh, and a big investment in my US fund, which is coming to the end of its life. So, yeah, that's my, I, I try and keep things simple. And I found that when I did own a lot of real estate, I, I, I ended up with the job of being a property manager in many ways. And that didn't feel very financially free. So I like the saying now that less is more. Yes, you still want to manage your risk, but you can do that astutely if you diversify your tenant base and your, your property type of property that you own and where you own it. Anyway, coming back to the story, I've, I've got enough money now uh, where I don't need to work. It's just my money working for me. Uh, I continue to work. Obviously, I've written a book that, that took a, a number of months in front of the keyboard. I'm not doing that as a money-making exercise. I'm doing that as a as a sort of legacy give-back piece around trying to help people who don't have anyone else who they can turn to to help. But then I can use the money that I've I've made and the money that the income that I earn to to a couple of examples of what I do at the moment. A large uh, donation every year to the Smith family to their learning for life program for helping kids who would otherwise drop out of school. Interestingly, I'm funding a medical project at the moment to try and do some trialling around knee braces rather than surgery for ACL injuries. My daughter ruptured her ACL and managed to reattach itself without surgery by following a, a bracing protocol. Wow. Uh, and I think it's going to change the game for the world and particularly for third world countries where there aren't surgeons, if people do their ACLs, uh, this, this bracing protocol could really offer life to people who would otherwise be in a lot of trouble. So we're getting that up and running at the moment. And, of course, I'm $3 million in the hole or in the ground, if you like, with this tree change project up here at Bindi where I've taken 1,500 acres of cleared land and and planting four. I've planted so far 400,000 trees to establish a new permanent forest. Love, uh, love it. In, a, in an area that's been devastated uh, 
in the the last couple of years with bushfires and every other damn thing you can throw at it, mate. So uh, that's that that's certainly providing some green shoots to a a much brighter f- a future, mate. I uh, I take my hat off to you in that in that regard, but uh, if if you are sort of circling back, given what we've covered off uh, in sort of bringing uh, part one of our conversation to a a summary, if you were starting out again, what would you invest in differently? Do you think, if if differently at all? Well, to answer that question, do you mean if I was starting out again in 1999 when I bought my first property or starting out again today? Uh, yeah, starting out again today. Yeah, it's a challenge because obviously real estate's much more expensive. I think what I would do differently today is instead of investing for me, I'd invest for we. So I would, I would form a, a collective of a few investors and I would pull our money together because there's no point arguing, oh, geez, I wish I had have got going in 1999 because there, we all face challenges. Back in 1999, it was hard to get money. Interest rates were higher. Yeah. People were saying the property market was about to crash. It was different, but it wasn't necessarily easier. And then what I would do is I would do little value-add projects where I'd buy problems, turn them into solutions. Uh, rooming houses, uh, my mate Ian Yagade uh, has a fantastic product he calls Rentrepreneur, which I would probably get involved in, where I would rent a property, turn it into a rooming house, and then make positive cash flow off that. I think that's where I'd start. Yeah. And then as I built my cash flow back up, I would I would then go back into commercial property, which is, I think, the easiest way of making money in, in real estate. Yeah, so is it, you sort of ascribe to the theory of, of you know, build the equity uh, using the, the growth of Brezzi and then convert it into commercial for more tax-effective cash flow? Is that is that what you're saying or is it for different reasons? No, don't worry about tax-effective. Don't let the tax tail wag the investing dog. Often people do that and they <laughs> pierce themselves with all sorts of transgressions. Now, I think what you need to what, – what I would say is use residential for growth and commercial for, for cash flow. Yeah, yeah, spot on, spot on. That's uh, but I've seen a, a big trend for people wanting to leap straight into commercial without really understanding the uh, complexities and the challenges that that go with that. Uh, you know, I've always thought that you know, if you're going from uh, starting from scratch, then then build it through Resi uh, because not only are you building your equity, but you're building your understanding, your knowledge, and it's your investment in your knowledge is as as important as the investment in the assets themselves because that builds the confidence that, and then the capability to allow you to then uh, leverage into uh, commercial or other rents as your nest egg gets to the point where you need to convert it into cash flow. What, what are your thoughts on that? If Monday is sunny and Tuesday is sunny and Wednesday is sunny, Thursday is sunny and Friday is sunny and Saturday is sunny and Sunday is sunny, what would you conclude about the weather? <laughs> it's sunny all year. It's sunny all the time. And when you look at the real estate market, we've had a week of sunny weather. And there's a lot of people out there that believe that it's always sunny in real estate. And I am living, breathing, I'm a living, breathing Cassandra that uh, it's not always sunny in real estate. And for those people that have started in commercial property before learning the basics in residential, when it rains in real estate, commercial property gets flooded. So be be very wary. Uh, I'm, I'm, my first job in accounting was in the early 1990s and State Bank of Victoria had gone bust and commercial property was a horrible place to be. Values, bank, values sliding, banks calling in debt. It was... It was blood on the streets. And so I would say there's definitely good money to be made in commercial property, but all my commercial property is 100% debt-free. Yeah. And that's the only way that I would own commercial property, very, very low LVR or ideally debt-free altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Very sage advice again, mate. Well, look, uh, uh, that's been an absolutely brilliant rundown on your journey so far, Steve. And, and you know, I'm really excited about your ongoing li- living legacy ahead. I'd, I'd now I sort of want to break our conversation briefly. Uh, so stay tuned for 
part two next week where we're going to deep dive on Steve's uh, new book, Money Magnet, How to Attract and Keep a Fortune That Counts. So stay tuned for more here on the Property Hubs Get Invested. Thanks for getting invested. Now, here's three easy ways you can take action to start making it happen. To ensure you build momentum and start living by design, not default, so that you're following your freedom formula. Firstly, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and keep the weekly inspiration coming. Secondly, get a copy of my book, Get Invested, for free and find out what it takes for you to invest in living more and working less. Just visit bushymartin.com.au forward slash books or knowhowproperty.com.au or click on the links in the show notes. And thirdly, join me and the Get Invested community. Each month, I send a free and exclusive email full of practical self-help and wealth wisdom that our current Freedom Fighter subscribers can't wait to get. Just visit bushymartin.com.au, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. And there you have it. In three easy steps, you're on your way to dusting off your forgotten dreams and making them a reality. Get Invested is proudly part of the Property Hub, your home for property investment insights and inspiration. When you subscribe to the show, you get all of your Get Invested episodes, along with Realty Talk, Australia's longest running and leading online property show for Red Hot Property Investing news and insights direct from all of the industry leaders and influencers. And finally, feel free to connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, as I'd love to hear your feedback, your inspiration, your ideas, and your questions and queries anytime. Thanks for listening. Hear you next week. And as always, dream as if you'll live forever and live as if the day's your last. Music